Welcome. This is Righteous or Evasive, a new podcast centered around the use of plea bargains. I'm Jennifer Allen. And I'm Julie Lau. As an introduction to this podcast, we would like to give some basic information on plea bargaining. Basically, a plea bargain is a legal term which describes a deal between a prosecution and defense, in which the defense pleads to a lesser crime in order to receive a lighter sentence and avoid trial. The United States is one of the only countries in the world that has a system like this. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, somewhere between 90 and 95% of all federal and state court cases end in a plea deal. The purpose of these deals is that it saves the government a lot of time and money. The state not only has to pay for their attorneys, but depending on the case, it also has to pay investigators, forensic testing, and expert witnesses. Many of these costs can be avoided through a plea deal. Plea bargaining is not a perfect solution, however. Over the course of this podcast, we will be examining the controversies surrounding this extremely common judicial occurrence. One of the largest criticisms of plea bargaining is centered around innocent people pleading guilty for potentially lighter sentences whenever they believe that the prosecution's case is strong enough to convict them despite the destruction of their innocence. That type of plea, an alpha plea, has actually been legitimized by the Supreme Court. They are made by defendants that maintain their innocence, but admit that the prosecution has a case strong enough to prove guilt beyond reasonable doubt. In order to examine issues of overuse and plea bargaining, we will delve into Alfred pleas. It was December 1963 in North Carolina, the height of the civil rights movement in the South. Henry Alford, an African-American man, had visited a prostitute at a bar and allegedly gotten into a fight with Nathaniel Young. Young was later killed from a shotgun blast, and Alfred was indicted for first-degree murder. Things weren't looking too good for Alfred. His inexperienced attorney, just a few years out of law school, was convinced of Alfred's guilt. Alfred claimed to be innocent, and there were no eyewitnesses to the actual crime, but three witnesses testified to seeing him retrieve his gun shortly after the murder, hearing him state he was going to kill Nathaniel Young, and hearing him boast about killing Young upon returning home. Alfred also had a prior conviction for murder and a lengthy criminal history. This amount of evidence led his attorney to conclude that Alfred would probably be convicted in a trial. At that time, North Carolina law penalized individuals that pleaded guilty to a first-degree murder charge of life imprisonment. However, if they were convicted by a jury verdict of guilty, they could be subjected to the death penalty unless the jury recommended life imprisonment. For second-degree murders, individuals would face 2 to 30 years of imprisonment. Alfred's attorney recommended that he plead guilty to the lesser charge of second-degree murder to avoid the death penalty. Ultimately, Alfred did plead guilty to the lesser charge, but he also declared his innocence in court by telling everyone that he was only pleading guilty to avoid the death penalty. He wrote in one of his appeals, I just pleaded guilty because they said if I didn't, they would gas me for it. The judge sentenced Alfred to a maximum 30 years of imprisonment for second-degree murder, and Alfred petitioned for a right of habeas corpus. In his appeal, he claimed that his plea was violating his constitutional rights because it was a product of fear and coercion. The district court that Alfred appealed to ruled that Alfred's plea was entirely voluntary. Not satisfied with the ruling, Alfred appealed again. In the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, it was ruled that Alfred's plea was not entirely voluntary because it was made under his fear of the death penalty. Finally, the case was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The majority decision, written by Justice Byron White, held that a plea can be accepted as long as the defendant is being advised by a competent lawyer and the defendant can conclude that his interests require a guilty plea and the record strongly indicates guilt. 
Under those conditions, a guilty plea may well maintain innocence can be accepted because the persecution has a strong enough case for conviction. In 1975, Alfred died in prison. Whether the defendant is innocent essentially does not matter when an Alfred plea is accepted in a case. Today, Alfred pleas are still being used. One of the most famous instances of using the Alfred plea is the West Memphis Three case. In fact, there have been a number of documentaries, movies, and books made about this case. Before we get into the actual plea deals though, let's start with the background of the case. And just a warning that some of the details of this crime may not be suitable for all listeners. On May 5th, 1993, three eight-year-old boys went missing in the small city of West Memphis, Arkansas. Their names were Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Steve Branch, known to his friends and family as Stevie. The boys were second graders at Weaver Elementary School. They were all members of their local Cub Scouts, and they were best friends. The three boys were last seen playing in the neighborhood of Robin Hood Hills around 6.30 p.m. Steve's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, called the boys to come home, but they never came, and by 7 p.m., they were reported missing. Search parties consisting of friends and neighbors canvassed the neighborhood in the hours following the boys' disappearances, but a more thorough police investigation began the next morning. At around 1.45 p.m., the day after the boys went missing, their bodies were found in a ditch near a small creek in Robin Hood Hills. The boys were stripped naked with their wrists tied behind their backs to their ankles. One of the boys, Christopher Byers, had multiple lacerations, including some found on his genitals. The autopsies revealed that Christopher died of, quote, multiple injuries, while Michael and Stevie died by, quote, multiple injuries and drowning. Damien Eccles was an original suspect. He came from a poor family, had dropped out of high school, and had previous charges of shoplifting and burglary. He had also spent several months in an Arkansas mental hospital. His parents requested he be sent there because they were concerned about his involvement with, quote, witchcraft and devil worship. These characteristics of Damien were the same that caused police to consider him a possible suspect. The crime scene led police to believe it could have been part of some form of satanic ritual. The police brought Damien into questioning on May 7, 1993. They did not place him under arrest. Rather, they claimed he was a potential source of information on the crime. They continued to question Damien regularly for the next month. On June 3, 1993, Jesse and Miss Kelly was brought in for questioning. He was also a high school dropout and had a previous record of vandalism. Jesse had known Damien from school, but they were not close friends. He had a reported IQ of 72, and at the age of 17, he was also a minor. Although his father gave permission for Jesse to go with police, he did not explicitly give consent for his son to be questioned or interrogated. Jesse confessed to involvement with the crime, however, only 46 minutes of Jesse's 12-hour interrogation was actually recorded. Jesse quickly recanted his confession. He claimed that he was coerced and threatened by police. The following clip is Jesse's attorney speaking on the coercion of the police while interrogating Jesse. And I apologize about the sound quality. This recording is from the original trial in 1994. This is exhibit 24, the body of Christopher Byers. And what kind of injuries did uh, Chris Byers have that you observed? It looked as though his penis had been removed. 
just from where you were sitting? Yeah, that's why I had to leave. Why? Because I, I always, along with seeing my little boy the way he was, I always had that picture of what he looked like in my mind. What you never knew until now. You were worried early on that, that, and you said early on, you really didn't want to know, but now you're hearing it. I mean, is it a lot harder than what you thought it was going to be? In his statement, Jesse claimed that he was, quote, scared of the police and that he did not understand the Miranda rights which had been read to him. Despite this, on February 27, 1994, eight months after his original confession, Jesse made another statement to police. This time, his lawyer was present, and although Jesse was advised against giving information to police, Jesse confessed yet again and gave police detailed information about the murders of Christopher Briars, Michael Moore, and Steve Branch. Shortly after Jesse's confession, police arrested Damien Eccles along with his close friend Jason Baldwin. Unlike Damien and Jesse, Jason was not a high school dropout and had no criminal record. In fact, he made relatively high grades in school and had planned to attend college for graphic design after high school. All three were indicted for the murders of Byers, Moore, and Branch. At trial, they all pled not guilty. Damien and Jason were tried together, while Jesse received a separate trial. Jason Baldwin was sentenced to life in prison. Jesse Miss Kelly was sentenced to life plus 20 years. Damien Eccles received the death penalty. Several pieces of information point to police fabrication in the case against the West Memphis Three. Jesse's defense lawyer argued several problems with the police investigation. He stated that the crime scene had been, quote, literally trampled, especially the creek bed. He also stated that the bodies had been removed before the coroner arrived. The creek had not been pro properly drained to obtain evidence, and there was blood found at the crime scene that was never tested. Furthermore, investigative journalist Mara Leverett cited additional problems with the investigation. According to Leverett, the police used brown paper bags from a local market to store physical evidence found at the crime scene. Since May 1993, several new pieces of evidence have emerged, which seem to steer blame away from the West Memphis Three. The plea deal involving the West Memphis Three occurred nearly 20 years later in 2011 following the presentation of new forensic evidence in the case. The state and defense released a joint status report regarding the evidence, quote, Although most of the genetic material recovered from the scene was attributable to the victims of the offenses, some of it cannot be attributed to either the victims or the defendants. The defense attorneys for the West Memphis Three soon filed a second amended writ of habeas corpus, which was accepted by the Arkansas Supreme Court. This new evidence allowed Eccles, Ms. Kelly, and Baldwin to negotiate a plea deal with prosecutors. Still claiming innocence, the three men entered into Alford pleas. The judge accepted their pleas and sentenced the men to time served, which allowed them to be released after 18 years and 78 days in prison. The men are still pursuing full exoneration. In a 2014 interview, Damien Eccles discusses his choice to enter into an Alford plea nonsensical. What an Alford plea means is you're accepting a guilty plea and maintaining your innocence at the same time. The reason it exists is so that it sort of brings closure to a case and it prevents the state from being held responsible for what they've done. They don't have to compensate you in any sort of way or ever admit that they made a mistake. Um, you know, people ask me, did I have a hard time accepting that, coming to terms with it? 
taking that plea? And the answer is no, because you know I'd been in prison for almost 20 years. I was losing my eyesight. My health was deteriorating, degenerating rapidly. You know, on death row, there's almost no such thing as medical care and dental care. They're not going to spend a lot of time and money and energy taking care of someone they plan on killing. I was literally dying. The final case I will like to examine is centered around the murder of Janet Christensen Alaroa. In the suburbs of Durham, North Carolina, Janet was found stabbed to death in her home in April 2005. The autopsy found that she had been stabbed three times in her neck, left hand, and chest, and it was the wound in the neck that killed her. Her husband, Raven Alaroa, claimed that he discovered his wife's body in their bedroom and their six-month-old son crying but unharmed in his crib after he returned from playing soccer that evening. At the time of her death, Janet was pregnant, but Raven himself was unaware of this. Raven was arrested by Durham Police in February 2010 in Idaho, where he and his son relocated. The first trial heavily relied upon witness testimony and statements made by Janet prior to her death. Janet's sister, Sanja Flood, testified that she found relevant computer disks in Raven's luggage after he moved in with her for a short period of time after Janet's death. The disc and the files that were all dated the day before his stabbing, they include some pornographic pictures of Janet. Her initial suspicion of Raven originated from his refusal to take a polygraph test upon the investigator's request. The prosecutor also used statements that Janet made her friends. She had voiced her fear of her husband and expressed concern that he might have bipolar disorder. And she was quoted that she never knew what she would get each day, the, ni the nice Raven or the Raven that was in a complete rage. Their marriage was not exactly harmonious either. At one point, Janet and Raven separated for a period of time after he cheated on her. When Raven discovered that she was praying over her son, Caden, she hesitated to tell Raven and even considered giving the baby up for adoption because her greatest fear was to leave her baby alone with Raven. The couple was also experiencing extreme financial difficulties leading up to the murder in April, and Raven was facing investment charges from stealing at work. It appeared that Raven would have benefited tremendously from Janet's $500,000 life insurance policy. Val Christensen, Janet's father, can be quoted as saying, In that trial, we saw the dark side of the defendant, Christensen said. He was disposed for what he really is, an embezzler, a convicted felon, a sexual predator, and a narcissistic, self-absorbed individual. Raven's second wife, whom he eventually divorced, also testified to his abusive and violent nature. Additional testimony from a couple that knew the Avaroas for years prior to their move to North Carolina gave the reasoning behind Janet's choice to stay with Raven despite constant verbal abuse and fear. It said, Janet loved Raven. She was willing to overlook his infidelities, his embezzlement, and his controlling nature. She wanted her marriage to work because she loved him and valued marriage. He threw that away like oh, yesterday's garbage as though it was worth nothing. Raven's defense attempted to dismiss the case by filing a motion, but they failed to do so. They claimed that between the time of Janet's death and Raven's arrest, viable evidence had been destroyed, released, or allowed to deteriorate. Fingerprints were not taken from Janet or Caden after the crime, and bloodstains on the interior door frame leading to the driveway tested positive for DNA that did not belong to Raven, but no other suspects were identified in pursuit. They also pointed out the string of auto and home break-ins in the Amarillo's neighborhood prior to Janet's murder. The piece of evidence that essentially closed the case involved Janet's contact lenses. Raven claimed that his wife was going to bed when he left to go play soccer, and according to his and her family's member statements, Janet always removed her contact lenses prior to going to bed. 
When Jen's body was exhumed, contact lenses were found extracted from her eyes, which showed that they had caught Raven Abarilla in a lie. The trial ended in a hung jury 1-11, with one juror supporting Raven's innocence. This led to a need for a second trial. However, prior to being retried for first-degree murder in 2014, nearly nine years after the actual murder, the state offered Raven a plea deal. He took it while claiming, I didn't receive a fair trial the first time. I don't think I'll receive a fair trial the second time. And the fact is, I love my family very much. And I don't think it's worth risking the possibility of spending the rest of my life in prison for something I didn't do. I take this plea to ensure that that doesn't happen. And that's the only reason I did not kill my wife. Raven believes that he would have been convicted for first-degree murder if he didn't take the plea, so he took it to avoid potential sentences, life penalty or life without parole. In the end, he was only sentenced to 95 to 123 months in prison for voluntary manslaughter. He could actually be released as early as 2018 due to the credit he has for a time previously served while awaiting trial. plea bargains are often the only viable choice a defendant has. They can be a powerful tool used by the state to convict defendants who seem suspicious, are misinformed, or are simply unlucky. Many defendants choose to take a plea bargain due to their lack of faith in our criminal justice system. This is especially apparent in the Alford pleas, since the defendant claims innocence but is aware that they will receive a sentence for the crime. We hope you have enjoyed our podcast of Alford pleas. Be sure to join us again in next week's episode where our colleagues will discuss discrimination in plea bargaining. You won't want to miss it.